Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with New York-based jazz singer Hillary Cole. She opened up about her newest 2021 CD, Sophisticated Lady, and her life in music. She is a beloved staple on the New York City jazz scene and world-renowned as a multifaceted concert hall and symphony performer. She emerged triumphantly from a difficult three-year legal battle to put this recording out and found her true musical heart in the process. Her story is great, and it's still unfolding. Enjoy. It's so nice to talk to you. Thanks so much. Yeah, you bet. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for taking a minute out. I appreciate it. Oh, my gosh. It's my pleasure. So let's go ahead and start off here. I think the, I think the big thing right now is COVID, and we're on the other side of it, and gigs are picking up, and you have an album coming out, Sophisticated Lady, that you can promote live. Talk to me about how this album feels for you to have it come out right now and with everything going on. That's such a good question. You know, it's been so hard for so many musicians and performers. It seems so strange not to, you know, be in front of an audience for such a long time. I mean, I remember <laughs> I had this moment when I was listening to, you know, Spotify, and it, was, it, had, it must have been a live performance. And as the track ended, I heard applause, and something happened to me. And I thought to myself, wow, I haven't heard applause in a very long time. And of course, it was on this track of this wonderful Bossa Nova uh, CD I was listening to. I don't even remember who the, the artist was. But I had this feeling that the applause kind of stirred up in me. And I thought to myself, my goodness, do I miss that. <laughs> so I, I'm, you know, really excited about getting this music out. It has taken a very long time, as you can imagine. We, we actually recorded it quite a while ago. Um, you know, and what I always like to do with my records and my projects is I really like to try to get as much of a live performance vibe as possible. So I don't go back. I don't auto-tune. I don't go back and, like, try to make things, quote-unquote, perfect. I really try to sing alongside, you know, my musicians so it does feel like we're performing the music instead of, quote-unquote, recording the music. And so, you know just to be able to kind of celebrate that, celebrate them, my incredible musicians on this record, is super important to me. And, and just getting my voice out there, because it just feels like it's been forever. I know it really hasn't been, but man, it feels like it's been a long time. Well, I feel like that being in the audience. And I guess another emotional layer to this is that you had, I did, from what I see, a three-year legal battle to get this album out. Talk to me a little bit about kind of how all of this came about and kind of how, how that's kind of a tapestry to this. Sure. Well, that was, um, you know, I, <laughs> I had kind of a famous breaking up of my personal life that also was my professional life. I uh, had a long-term partner who is the owner of Birdland, and we had a management deal together. We had a recording contract deal together. And so when that, you know, when that ended, it was for both of us, I think, just devastating. I know it, it definitely was for on my side, and I, I, I believe it's, it was mutual devastation, unfortunately. You know, we've since kind of patched things up, which has been hugely important for me just to kind of go forward as a human being and to kind of have some closure. But it was a very long time that I was not able to put out recordings. And so it was more, more than three years, actually. It was more like five. Um, but then in the meantime, you know, the silver li there's always a silver lining. A silver lining for me was I w met a wonderful man. We got married, and we had two babies. So I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old. 
the last record that I did was when I was pregnant with my first daughter, who's now six. So, you know, in the meantime, I was going on with my life. And now I feel like, you know, even though it's been a long time coming and getting records out to the public, I also feel like I'm a better interpreter. I have so much more life experience, you know, going through a huge breakup. Even that obviously informs a lot of, you know, the song choices that I choose, you know, how I interpret the lyric, really being able to dig in versus when I was a younger singer and, you know, had a really pretty voice and frankly didn't have the life experience. You know, certainly (laughs) I have a lot more life experience now. So, you know, again, the silver lining is I think that you can hear that in these tracks versus my younger recordings. So although, you know, I have missed being a recording artist for a long time because I really do enjoy that. I love being in the studio. I love being able to create something that is, you know, finite. You know, I think for me, the great thing about that time off is that I got to be a mom. I got to, you know, have them influence my life, influence my choices, influence how I see the world. And again, as any artist can attest, you know, you really draw on yourself when you you do these things. So, you know, the great news is I'm back and unencumbered. And hopefully, and I know it's going, this is going to be the first record of many more in my, in my new life. So what do you want the listener to ultimately get from Sophisticated Lady? How do you want them to feel about this project? Oh, that's such a great question. You know, I really wanted to take people on a journey and bring them back to a time where these kinds of arrangements were done all the time. You know, you don't get to hear a lot of records where you have kind of, you know, fully orchestrated tracks. So this is, you know, really lush. We have a wonderful, we have Tom Beckham on vibes. We have Chris Byers on sax and woodwinds, John Hart on guitar, Paul Gill on bass, Aaron Kimmel on drums, um, Adam Birnbaum on piano. And these are all incredible musicians. And I really wanted to showcase them. I wanted to showcase the vibe of really like a 1940s glamorous time. In in a way, I wanted to kind of go back to another time and, and really just kind of sit there with it. So the entire record has a really vibey feel. Uh, maybe a bit of a dark feel, um, maybe almost like a film noir. That's why in the cover we do it in, in black and white. And, you know, I'm in my grandmother's mink. It's my grandmother's mink, by the way. It's, I did not buy a mink for this. I do not believe in fur. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. But it's a vintage mink. Um, and because I was really trying to, you know, uh, embody this idea of film noir of a darker, gorgeous, kind of moody, shadowy, life of, you know, 1940s New York. So that's really what I want to bring people back to. And, you know, I'm not necessarily the sophisticated lady. I really feel like I'm playing a part in this project. So during this COVID time, before we depart the the, the modern and the current, you know, it was a time of self-reflection. So I know that the world of jazz did a lot of things to adapt and evolve over this time. But you specifically, what did you learn about yourself that's going to make you stronger as you reemerge to the stage with the new albums? Wow, that's, oh, man. I mean, I think we're still learning. And, uh, you know, I don't think we're, in, unfortunately, over all of this. The lear- but the good part is we've all become so much more flexible. I really realize that, for me, making music is 
super is is an integral part of my life, and it's something that I can't really go without. And so I'm going to do everything necessary to do that. Also, you know, I'm lucky enough that I play piano myself and I compose music myself. And so I was able to, you know, at least kind of self-soothe with music. I could sit down at my piano. I could work on these arrangements. I could do that. And I could also do that for my audience in, in small ways, doing, you know, some live concerts. And I think that's part of going forward. I think what we've learned as musicians is it's not enough just to try to get gigs at, at, the, at the few venues that are out there. There are so few venues out there right now. I mean, if you think about what it used to be, uh, my father was a Broadway singer and, you know, and then worked at a, in a resort area called the Casco Mountains where there were 250 resorts at one time. And he would sing, you know, nine or ten times, ten shows a week at different venues. Those days just don't, Aren't, it's just not available for musicians anymore to do that. So we have to be really smart, and we have to use technology to get to our audience. If we don't do that, it's just, gonna, it's just too hard because there are so few venues that it's really impossible, unless you're a superstar, to make a living. And so you have to really adapt, and technology is a big part of that. Talk to me a little bit about how the beginnings, the seeds of jazz began for you. Wow. Uh, I started out, my, my, again, I said my father was a, a Broadway singer, and so I grew up listening to him. You know, it was past his prime when I grew up. I, he had me later in his life, but he was a wonderful vocal teacher, and he, I grew up listening to scales, basically, listening him to, in our one-bedroom apartment, teach the next generation of Broadway singers and, uh, you know, and jazz singers how to sing, how to use their instrument. So it, it just was like, that's what we did in our house. We just always sang. We always had scales. We always knew where one was in terms of pitch and things like that. Um, I was lucky enough to go to Manhattan School of Music, and that really opened my eyes. I originally wanted to go for film composition. I wanted to be John Williams. I wanted to do film scoring. And oddly enough, I knew that I could probably get in, maybe not as a film score uh, major and as a composition major, but I knew that I could sing. So I took the audition, and I, I sang for my audition. I also did composition, and I ended up going to school, and they, got me, they gave me a full scholarship, very strangely, for jazz composition. And I was like, huh, okay. And I honestly did not really know. I knew about Ella Fitzgerald, but I didn't really understand the history of the music. And when I got there, it was just such an eye-opener. I remember you know, just listening to my history classes, listening to Coltrane, listening to Miles Davis, listening to the orchestrations of Gil Evans, and I just fell in love with it. And it's, again, it's something that just speaks to me. And as a composer, it speaks to me because you have that improvisational quality, that compositional quality. So I, I kind of think of myself as a composer in time, right? That's what, that's what improvisation is. And so... I was able to fulfill that, that need to compose by improvising. And it's something that I love to do. It's something I do on all of my live concerts. It's something that I have rarely ever recorded. So this was also an opportunity for me to kind of stretch out and give the audience who's listening to the record, if they have not seen me in performance, to really understand what I do as a, um, as a live performer. What was the first live show, jazz show, you saw that really – made you think, I would love to do that? Wow, that's such, okay, you have such good questions. Um, I was lucky enough to 
see a master class. It was a master class, really, and it was Elvin Jones. And it was while I was in Manhattan School of Music. And I thought to myself, like, do I really need to go see a master class from a, a jazz drummer? Like, that's, you know, of all the things that you would think as a singer and a composer. But I watched him. And first of all, he was an incredible uh, facilitator and, and technician, obviously. And I just fell in love with him, his vibe, how he spoke about the music, what it meant to him. And it really kind of just took me on this, on this journey. And then I would say, you know, singers, I got to see a live concert in Brazil of Rosa Passos and how incredible she was. And how, you know, how quickly she could improvise. And then all of a sudden she, she at one point took everybody off the stage and she came out just with a guitar and it was just her and guitar and she just killed it. And I just remember thinking that's, that's who I want. That's, that's the kind of vibe that I want to give. That's the kind of experience that I as a performer want to be able to give to my, to my audience to really have the audience be in the room when the sausage is being made, right? To feel that that instant connection when that performer finds that line within the harmony and you experience that with the audience at the same time that it's being made. To me, that's, that's jazz. That's what it's about. And I've been very, very lucky. Um, you know, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of shows at Birdland and, and Blue Note, and I was lucky enough to be able to work with people like Dave Brubeck and and some incredible performers on my in my career. Um, but that's really for me what it's about. So speaking of incredible performers, Dave Brubeck, veterans, luminaries that you've been around, what did they teach you that you in turn are teaching younger musicians that you now get around? From Brubeck, I learned humility and. Uh, humility. He was the most humble guy and you can't even, I mean, and, and the sweetest man in the entire world. And he, I was lucky enough to record a duet with him, two duets with him a few records ago. I did a record of um, just duets with great pianists. And all of them were incredibly wonderful and giving and generous of their time and their talent. But with Dave, it was even more so. And he, I remember being so nervous to actually be in the room with him. I mean, he was an idol of mine, a wonderful composer, an incredible musician. Um, and here I was, young in my, you know, a younger person, start kind of starting out in my career, certainly not at the pinnacle of my career. And I was a nervous wreck to meet Dave Rubeck and then get to be in the studio with him. And he took my hand. And at one point he said, you know, I kept on calling him Mr. Brubeck, Mr. Brubeck. And he looked at me with the sweetest blue eyes and said, just call me Dave. And I said, Dave, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just really nervous. And he looked at me and he grabbed my hand and in all humility looked at me and said, I am too, I really want to make this good for you. And that just blew me away. And I never forgot that, what that did for me, how he built me up as a young artist. And he really meant it. It wasn't being patronizing at all. He really wanted to play in a way that helped me and that supported me as a singer. And he did. And he's incredible, was incredible. And that is what I try to give to, you know, other musicians, people that I teach voice to, and, and musicians that I work with that are just coming out. It's about a tradition that gets passed down. And I have been so lucky to have been able to work with some of the greats of all times. And 
you know, I'm not certainly not saying I'm one of those, but I am saying that as someone with now <laughs> 25 years of experience, I can't believe I'm saying that, I have a lot to teach uh, younger students and younger people who have not had the opportunities yet that I've had. And so I do think it's an oral tradition. It's, it's about passing on this tradition to the next generation or else it gets lost. So if you have a dream tonight and you run into your younger self, like around the time you were getting ready to start performing, and you could give your younger self one piece of advice based on what you've learned over all these years, what would that one piece of advice be? <laughs> wow. I've, I will tell you, I've thought about that a lot, <laughs> especially in this last year. I would say the number one thing I would, be, I would want to say to myself is don't let anyone who is in the quote-unquote business of music tell you who you should be. Find if you know, you know, actually, I shouldn't say if you know, you know who you are. I'm not saying not taking advice is, is, a, is a bad thing. Always listen to everybody. Be open to change. But if it's something that is about your core and who you are, you need to be that person. I have been told by many A&R people, you can't scat, only Ella scats, you can't scat on a record, you can't do this, you shouldn't be doing bossa nova, you shouldn't be doing this or that. Everything from what I wear to what I'm singing. And I just reject that as a, as a now a middle-aged person and human. I just know now that that was their own thing and that was their own opinion. And they have a right to their opinion, but it did not serve me. And I think early in my career, I did what a, what a lot of people do. And I tried to make the record company happy or the possible manager or agent happy. And the truth is, they're not the artist. Be true to yourself. Find who you are. You know who you are if you actually listen and follow that path because there is no guarantee. Even if you do everything that they say to do, there's no guarantee. And the truth is, the secret, the secret is they don't know the secret to success either. So go your own way. And if you fail, at least you fail on your own terms and you don't say to yourself, wow, I failed, but I didn't make the record that I really should have made. And, you know, again, the freedom of being a little bit older is you get to make the record that you want to make because, there, because why, why do anything else? I'm not interested in making a, another kind of record. I'm interested in being who I am. And if that's a jazz singer to some people, great. If that's a cabaret singer, oh, okay. If I'm a, you know, again, with vocalists, they, t they tend to want to put you in a very, very small pigeonhole, either your jazz or your cabaret or your musical theater or your what, whatever it is. And I just, I reject that because I think there's two kinds of music, the good kind and the other kind. We're getting back to the live environment. There's been a lot of things that have changed. We've dealt with a lot of Zoom and a lot of virtual shows. But now that we're getting back and things are opening back up, what do you hope both audience and musician gets from this long absence away from live music when we return together? Well, my hope is that people realize how important it is. Because I think, you know, it's really hard for the average person, you know, even if they go to concerts fairly regularly, to 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 really realize on a daily basis how how important it is to have that. You know, even if you don't go to a club every week or twice a week, like so many, you know, lucky people get to do, the fact that it's there, the fact that it's happening, enriches all of us as a as as human beings. 
And I, my hope is that people really realize how important it is. You know, I uh, live in New York City, and, and now I'm in Connecticut, actually, but lived in, in, the, in New York City for, for decades. And what is New York City without music and theater, without live performance? It's not much, I'll tell you. Because when, when I was there in the pande- during the pandemic and everything was shut down, it, you really kind of think, like, well, what, what is New York without that? And the answer is, is pretty dismal. So um, my hope is that people realize how important it is, and especially this specific art form. This is America's art form. We don't have a lot that was made in America in terms of music. This was made in America. This is unique to us. Everyone else tries to do it, but this is where this music came from. This is part of who we are. This is part of our soundtrack. And we need to keep it going. We need to open new clubs. We need to make it easier for restaurants and other non-traditional venues to have live music. We need to be able to support our musicians because (laughs) it is really tough to make a living just as a jazz drummer or just as a jazz bassist, as, as you can imagine. And, and also support the, 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 the channels in which the music comes, right? So, so we have to support radio. We have to support alt streaming. We have to support all of these jazz journalism. We have to support this. And if we don't, it dies on the vine. And, you know, again, I have two small kids. I want them to be able to have this rich tapestry of jazz in their lives. And it is up to us, our generation, to keep that going. Everyone has a perception of you. Everyone has an idea of who they think you are, your family, your friends, your fans. But ultimately, you're the one that's living your life. What's what's your perception of who you are? Who do you think you are? Wow. (laughs) How much time do you have? No, um, I think I'm a a lot of different things, as, as everyone is, right? So I'm a mother, and I am a friend, and I am a... I'm someone who needs music and art in their lives. I love beauty. I love nature. I moved out to Connecticut, and I I need green. I need to see the world and how it changes. I need to see how the seasons change. Who am I? That's a that's a really good question. Maybe I'll need to do my next record based on that. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Hillary, thank you for taking some time out. Good luck with the album and the return to the stage. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for what you do. I really appreciate that. What a great interview you are. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest singers and crooners in New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Hillary for time, music, and cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.